so go ahead and turn, your, uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Hopefully you have a handout on your uh, seat. Uh, so make sure you have one. There's some extras on the table in the back uh, by Turner. Uh, so make sure you have one, but then don't look at it yet. Don't look at it. We're not there yet, but we will get there. All right, well, let me pray for us, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this Lord's Day that you have made. We thank you that we can gather to worship you as one blood-bought, redeemed uh, community, as the sheep of your pasture, the sheep of your right hand. And now as we turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke, uh, I pray that you'd give us clarity, that you would illumine the Scriptures for us by your Spirit, and that we would uh, learn more about you, and specifically learn more about your Son who came to seek and to save the lost, the one who uh, was willing and eager and uh, loved to stand in his baptism and stand in solidarity with us, uh, sinners in need of grace. And so bless this time now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we uh, got just to uh, Jesus' baptism. So we're going to pick up right there where we left off uh, in uh, Luke chapter 3 and in verse uh, 21. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And we see that, uh, that uh, if you remember, uh, John uh, the Baptist, uh, he was baptizing by the Jordan River, in the Jordan River. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we talked about uh, a little bit about what that looked like, what that meant. Uh, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. But now we get to this uh, passage of Jesus' baptism, which is, uh, in Luke's account, only two verses long. So he, he offers us uh, just a brief glimpse, but a very uh, 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 condensed and, and full, of, of, uh, full of importance, uh, just in these, these two verses, verses 21 and 22. So let me read them for us. Now, when all the people were baptized, and so, again, we can pause right there. And here's a perfect example of when sometimes in Scripture the word all does not mean all. <laughs> and so not every single person that ever existed was baptized. Not every single person in the region of Judea was baptized. But uh, this is expressing John's prolific ministry that a great multitude, many, many people were baptized. And then when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... So Jesus had been baptized, and now, past tense, very recent past tense, he was baptized, and now, present tense, currently, he's praying. And it's while he's praying that the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." So there's a lot of things in there. I want us to look at uh, a few of the implications of Jesus' baptism. Some of the, the, the main uh, results, implications, reasons for his baptism. Uh, I'll t- uh, describe each of them briefly, and then we'll discuss them in more detail. So first, we see that Jesus is endorsing John's baptism and endorsing, Don- endorsing John's message and his ministry. That is, that... They, the people did need to repent uh, for the forgiveness of their sins, and that Jesus was indeed, uh, or John was, a, a prophet, the one who was called by God to prepare uh, the people for the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus himself. So he's endorsing John's message, his baptism, 
uh, Jesus is also standing in solidarity with sinners, the sinners who are coming to repent of their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins. And the third thing we see is that Jesus was anointed, this Jesus of Nazareth, anointed as the Messiah. Let's look at those uh, three uh, things uh, briefly here. The first, uh, that uh, Jesus uh, was endorsing uh, John's baptism. We talked about this briefly last week, uh, but there are two significant aspects of John's baptism. One being uh, that it was a baptism, uh, and the location of the baptism was the Jordan River. Uh, so why the Jordan River? That's a very important thing. Another thing is that it was a baptism, like we said, for the repentance of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the Jordan River, we remember, has a significant place in the redemptive history of God's people. It's the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua chapter 3, uh, when God's people crossed into the promised land. And that crossing of the Jordan River itself was a reenactment of sorts. It was, it was uh, a type of the, the great Exodus event and the crossing of the Red Sea. And we see that in many different connections between the Jordan River crossing in Joshua chapter 3 and the, and the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. We see the Holy Spirit and the glory cloud is the one that led Israel through the Red Sea. And, and uh, also in Joshua, the, the ark of the Lord and, and God's presence also led the people through uh, the Jordan. Uh, we see in the Red Sea that the, the sea turned into dry ground in the Exodus event. We see the same thing uh, in the crossing as the Levites step into the water. Uh, the the, the uh, Jordan River, uh, the waters uh, stand up in a heap. So the waters stand up in a heap in, uh, the, at the Jordan River. In the Red Sea, the waters stand upright, uh, walls of water on, on either side. So John is purposely connecting his baptism, not just then to the repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins, but, but also to the historic uh, redemptive uh, work of God. His baptism was, was uh, in his mind and, and through the work of God, it was him preparing and getting ready for this new exodus that was going to happen, this new exodus that the Messiah, the, uh, God's anointed, Jesus the Christ, he was going to lead through the Jordan River to the new uh, promised land, as it were, uh, back into God's presence, into relationship uh, with him. So that's the first uh, thing that's significant of John's baptism and something that Jesus himself is, is endorsing by being baptized by him. He's saying, this is correct, this is true. Along with that, given God's, uh, the, the, God's people and, and their sinfulness and their lack of covenant faithfulness, which is, is uh, seen all throughout uh, Scripture and history, the people needed to repent, and he was calling uh, his people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. So the people needed to prepare for the coming of Christ. It was, and it was not simply enough uh, to have an outward sign of, of repentance. And so we see that uh, when uh, John calls the Pharisees and Sadducees, some of the other uh, groups of people coming down, he, he describes them, you brood of vipers. And he tells them to uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's because it's, uh, it's the inward change uh, that's required. Uh, not just the outward washing as a, as a symbolic act, though that is important, but it's the, the inward real, reality, the inward change that matters. And so Jesus is uh, he's, um, 
endorsing that message, as it were, uh, that um, the people needed to uh, repent for the forgiveness of their sins. That's an important uh, part of, of John's message that Jesus agreed with. And that leads us then to the, the second uh, implication aspect of, of Jesus' baptism. And this is something that we're not told uh, explicitly in Luke's gospel, but we see it show up in some of the other accounts in the Synoptic Gospels and in Matthew's gospel uh, especially. Uh, Luke simply says Jesus was baptized, and, and his, his concerns are mostly with John's ministry and also with uh, Jesus' anointing, which is the third aspect that we'll get to in a moment. But Matthew uh, gives us more detail. Uh, if we, uh, we don't need to turn there right now, but you'll remember uh, when uh, Jesus comes to be baptized by John in Matthew's gospel, uh, John would, uh, would have him uh, not be baptized. And his point is very simple, because Jesus' baptism is greater, and John is in need of being baptized by Jesus and not Jesus by John. That's what he says in Matthew 3.13, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And John understood... Uh, rightly so, that his baptism was a lesser baptism. But just like uh, he says in the Gospel of Luke, he also says in Matthew that the one coming after him is, is mightier. He is unworthy to even carry his sandals, and his, his baptism is mightier than John's. Uh, John, John's baptism is a simple baptism of, of water, uh, signifying the repentance of sins. But Jesus' baptism is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Uh, only Jesus, only the, the Son of God, only, only uh, this one would, is able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's not able to baptize with the Holy Spirit, but, but Jesus is. John understands that he is a sinner himself. He needs the Holy Spirit. He needs the purification uh, through fire, which Jesus brings. But we read Jesus humbly rebukes John and says uh, that, let it be so now, let, 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 us, uh, let me be baptized for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew three fourteen. And so John uh, consents and he baptizes uh, Jesus. But the question for us is, is, what does it mean that Jesus says this is to fulfill all righteousness? Well, Jesus is fulfilling, and this is the beginning now, of his uh, being anointed for the mission for which he was sent. Jesus was going to accomplish the redemption of his people. And in the words of uh, the prophet Isaiah, he was going to be numbered among the transgressors. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that he, uh, for our sake, he was, he, uh, was made uh, sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So let me uh, quote uh, from Philip Ryken, who uh, really um, stresses this point very helpfully. He says, Obviously, Jesus did not need to be baptized for the forgiveness of his own sins. Nevertheless, he was baptized. He did not have to do this, but he chose to. He made a deliberate decision to join with sinners in baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus did not have to be baptized for his own sins. Rather, he was identifying with sinners in their need of forgiveness. This was an act of solidarity. Jesus was taking the place of sinners, so already at the beginning of his public ministry, we are reminded of the ancient prophecy that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53. So Jesus is uh, standing with us in 
that baptism, in his baptism, he's identifying himself as a sinner with you and me. And so on account of, of his baptism and, and his work, his, his life and ministry, his person and work, and his uh, substitutionary and atoning sacrifice on the cross, uh, we have forgiveness of our sins. And so as Luke will say in Ma- uh, Luke 19, uh, that the Son of Man indeed came to seek and to save the lost, and he's accomplishing that, that work. Uh, his baptism also fulfills the, the types and the shadows of these previous baptisms uh, from Scripture. And so we see uh, the baptism of, of the flood, uh, the exodus, and the Jordan, like we already uh, talked about. These are all what types of, of baptism that now Jesus is fulfilling um, in, in himself and in his work. And the third aspect of Jesus' baptism that we want to talk about is, is his anointing uh, as a Messiah. So we see as he's praying, and again, that's an important, important point that Luke makes throughout his gospel, is, uh, is that God acts uh, through prayer. Uh, we remember uh, Zechariah was praying, and the people were praying in, uh, uh, in the temple when the, the angel met with Zechariah. Uh, we see prayer all throughout uh, Luke and also in Acts, that God, God is working uh, through prayer. And so it is while Jesus is praying uh, that this voice comes from heaven and the dove uh, descends upon him. Uh, and uh, we should also note that uh, Jesus, uh, he's anointed by the Spirit in this moment, and we see the, the triune God, we see the Trinity at work here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working in perfect unity, uh, inseparably uh, working to accomplish uh, redemption uh, in time and place and history. But we should, we should make sure we know Jesus was not lacking the Spirit. Uh, he was not without the Spirit. The Son of God was not without uh, the third. The second person of the Trinity was not without the third person of the Trinity at any moment in time. He was conceived by the Spirit's power in Luke chapter 1. And he was filled with the Spirit's wisdom. And we see that in, in the narrative accounts of his youth. Uh, but uh, at his baptism, the Spirit made a public declaration that he was uh, with Jesus, and that Jesus was now being empowered and prepared for his ministry. He was anointed for his ministry, and we see this uh, throughout uh, Luke and also in Acts and elsewhere in Scripture, uh, that it's by the power of the Spirit that Jesus accomplishes uh, these tasks. Uh, when we get to chapter 4 in Jesus' temptation, it says that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit uh, as he goes and he uh, uh, resists uh, the temptation of the wilderness. It's, it's by the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit that Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. It's by the Spirit that he worships his Father in heaven, that he performs mighty miracles. Uh, It was through the Spirit that he offered his body on the cross for our sins, and it's the power of the Spirit that raises him from the dead on the third day and gives us eternal life. And this uh, nowhere is uh, better summarized than in uh, Peter's uh, sermon and his statement in Acts chapter 10, where he says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit, and with power. And so Jesus is now, he's anointed uh, by the Spirit, and he is declared, and this is also the other thing that happens here, he's anointed with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and now he's declared from the voice from heaven, from the Father himself, who declares that, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. 
Now, similar to uh, the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity never being separate or apart from the third person, it's also true that, that uh, the second person was never at any point not uh, the Son of the first person of the Trinity, but that existed in all eternity, this, this trying relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus did not become the Son of God in this moment, but the Father was declaring to all the world what has always been true from before time, from all eternity, that the divine uh, Trinitarian relationship between Father and Son and this, this human now, this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Son of God, the Son of God incarnate, fully God and fully man. So we see that declaration, you are my beloved son, and then uh, the voice says, and with you I am well pleased. The father is pleased with the son, and he's pleased with the son's obedience. By submitting to baptism, Jesus was choosing to take the part of sinful humanity. He was agreeing to carry out the great task that the father had given him to suffer and to die for sinners. And so the father was pleased with him, and the father blessed him for that. And uh, I won't preach uh, to you this morning, but what's important, what we see in this moment, Jesus is standing in solidarity with sinners. And so when we are in Christ, everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us. And so when the Father declares to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, when you are in Christ and you are a new creation, the Father is declaring unto you, you are my beloved Son, you are my beloved daughter, and I am well pleased with you. And so when we see Jesus standing in, in the baptism for the repentance of, of sins, he had no sins of which to repent or in, and no need of forgiveness, but, but he's identifying himself with us, and, and we can rest in his work on the cross, which makes us uh, uh, and, a, and brings us into adoption into this family. We can call him friend. We can call him an elder brother, and we have a heavenly father uh, who loves us and is pleased uh, with us. So that'll wrap up uh, the baptism, and we'll move on to the next section. I'll just pause now if there's any uh, questions or anything that uh, could be helpful to clarify or, or thoughts in general. Well, uh, first, it's an ob- so the question is, what do we, what do we make of, of the dove descending upon, upon the Lord? Uh, well, the first thing is that this is a literal, uh, subjective reality. Uh, there was, it's not uh, purely uh, symbolic, but there was, the, uh, Jesus saw and John saw and, and whoever else uh, was there saw a, a dove descend uh, down upon, uh, upon Jesus. And uh, so, so we see the Spirit um, uh, coming to Jesus, and, and there's a lot of, of different uh, things that we can take from that uh, imagery. Uh, one of the things... Um, is that the dove uh, is a symbol of purity, but it's also a, a common uh, animal. It's the same uh, animal as a pigeon. It's the, those two uh, words describe the exact same creature. And so the spirit is not coming down uh, in pomp and glory, but uh, coming down in, in a simple way, uh, a peaceful way, a uh, comforting way. And so we see that consistent with what the spirit does and his, his work uh, in scripture. And uh, it's an objective thing as well. So just as the voice was heard by all those there, the, the, the dove was also seen uh, by all those there. 
uh, descending down from heaven to the Son of Man. And, uh, and that will, um, we'll see that again in uh, the, the account at Pentecost where the Spirit is, is poured out uh, upon the people. And so, so that's consistent with those two, uh, those two things, that the, the, um, the Spirit is poured out from heaven, uh, the Spirit uh, proceeds from Father and Son, uh, and, and so we, we see that uh, happen here in the biblical text. Does that answer your question a little bit? Cool. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I, I know people disagree, uh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I would take it as, as like a dove in the sense that it looked like a dove and flew like a dove. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what did Noah send out? He sent out a dove. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that's an accident either, that we see those, those connections through redemptive history. And again, Noah's, uh, the flood was a, was a baptism, and, and Peter says as much in his, his uh, first Peter, uh, chapter 3, makes that connection. Well, let's go on. We have plenty to talk about in the next section, uh, because now we're getting to the, the really fun uh, genealogy. Woo, everyone's excited. Everyone's uh, just uh, chomping at the bit. They can't wait to talk about this long list of names. So now you can uh, take out the handout and look at that. I, w- I have been racking my brain uh, over the past uh, couple weeks at least, uh, trying to figure out what the best way to approach this topic is. Uh, because this is one of the, uh, one of the big questions uh, that we have. Uh, because we have these... Uh, and then the two birth narratives of, of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, we have these two different genealogies uh, that have many different uh, many differences, not just in the names, uh, but uh, but it's been a perennial question of how to um, reconcile these two genealogies, how we're to understand them, and uh, what we draw away from them. So uh, when, uh, and unlike Matthew and Mark, so Matthew has a genealogy, Mark does not, but both Matthew and Mark, they, they move right from Jesus' baptism to his temptation in the wilderness. And so the question I left you all with last week is, why does Luke uh, put his baptism or his genealogy here in between Jesus' baptism and the temptation in the wilderness? That should immediately, immediately make us pause and ask, ask why. Why is it inserted here? So we're going to get to that question, but first we need to discuss and we need to talk about why these genealogies between Luke and Matthew are so different. And so that's what I'd like to do today, uh, the rest of our time, is just uh, is to consider these two genealogies and in doing so uh, help us to understand that, that first question, that important question, why does Luke include this genealogy, why does he include it uh, here? Uh, so I, w- I, won't, I will not have the, the text on the screen, uh, but, uh, but you have the handout, so be referring to that. And uh, if you have your Bibles open, we can flip back and forth between Matthew chapter 1 and Luke uh, chapter 3. So in what ways are Matthew and Luke's uh, genealogies different? Uh, there's at least six uh, different things, so let's, let's lay those out here uh, as we go along. So the first thing you'll notice is that the sequence is different. Uh, Matthew begins with Abraham and goes forward in time. Uh, Luke begins with Joseph and goes backward in time. And so if you're looking at the handout on page one, 
uh, and you'll notice three columns. There's a column for Matthew, a column for Luke, and then a column in the middle which says common, and those are the names that Matthew and Luke uh, have in common, hence the, the column name uh, common. Uh, I did my best to make this not confusing, but uh, we'll see how confusing it ends up. But you'll see in the common column, uh, this begins with Abraham. That's where Matthew begins. But Luke uh, goes all the way up to Adam and up to uh, God himself, and so tho- those names are unique in Luke's column. So the sequence uh, is, is different. Matthew begins with Abraham, and he goes forward in time. And you'll notice I reverse the order in Luke, but Luke begins with uh, Joseph, and Luke goes backward in time. And so uh, uh, Luke says, uh, Joseph, uh, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and so on and so on. He goes all the way back that, uh, in that way, back to uh, Adam, uh, the son of God. And so that's the, that's the second difference, is there's a different endpoint. So Matthew's genealogy only traces uh, Jesus' uh, genealogy back to Abraham, uh, but Luke will trace it all the way back to, to Adam. Oops. A third difference is in the detail that they provide. Matthew will stop occasionally. He'll explain uh, the significance of, of certain entries or provide more information about uh, certain individuals. Uh, for example, uh, he'll, he'll mention Judah as the father of Perez and Zerah uh, by Tamar. Uh, and he'll say, uh, uh, he'll, he'll list uh, David the king as opposed to simply listing him as David. So Luke, Luke never uh, shares any of these extra details. He just uh, simply leaves uh, their name. Uh, we also see the structure is different. Uh, Matthew structures his genealogy around three groups of 14 generations, he says. And uh, he, he uh, does this explicitly, and he, and he uh, is making a very profound theological point in that, is, is that there's these three uh, periods of, of redemptive history from Abraham to David, and from King David to the exile to Babylon, and from the exile to Babylon to Jesus uh, the Christ, uh, the Son of God. And he's making a very important uh, theological point in doing so, uh, is that Jesus is uh, the Son of David, he is uh, the offspring of Abraham, and uh, he is going to uh, bring his people back from the exile of their sin, as it were, uh, and he is the, the Messiah King who was uh, promised. Luke's structure uh, is not described explicitly. Uh, ostensibly, it's uh, 11 groups of seven names each. That's what some people try to think, and so we have 77 names total. Uh, thinking of, we, we think that uh, Luke might have done this on purpose to, to use the uh, number 77 to, to designate a, a totality or completeness uh, to his genealogy. Uh, but he does not bring any attention to the structure in any way. And we see that clearly in the text. And even in our uh, English translations, it's just one long paragraph. And it can be uh, tedious to, to try to read through and, and uh, figure it out. So uh, the structure of the two are different. Another interesting difference is that uh, Matthew will highlight uh, very important women uh, in, in his genealogy. Uh, Tamar, uh, we mentioned already, Rahab, uh, Ruth, and uh, the, uh, quote, the wife of Uriah, or uh, Bathsheba. Uh, so he, he lists these, but Luke lists none, and that's kind of an interesting thing because one of Luke's main themes is, is highlighting uh, women throughout uh, the gospel and, and in the book of Acts as well. Uh, so he, he's, 
he has a very simple uh, genealogy that's really not taking any breaks, but is getting to the end, uh, and we'll, we'll see why as we go along. The last difference is the lineage, um, and, and this is why the handout will be helpful for us, because we'll see uh, that there's a significant divergence uh, in, uh, in the names and in the, the lines that uh, Luke and Matthew are tracing, and the question is why. Uh, so of of the differences, only this last one, only this the different uh, the different uh, routes that they go. That's the only one that really uh, presents any um, any uh, difficulty for us, uh, and and that's what we'll discuss the rest of our time this morning. Uh, there's two main explanations. And now I should just preface this by saying uh, there's virtually uh, infinite uh, explanations uh, to why these are different because uh, we simply do not know all these different names on here. And um, I am certainly uh, not going to solve the problem for us this morning, or all the problems, or all the questions. Uh, so there's going to be some uh, dissatisfaction <laughs> as we leave this morning. Uh, but I hope to uh, help us to wrap our heads around exactly what uh, Luke is doing here, why they're different, and, and give um, two explanations that uh, are both very much uh, satisfactory. Uh, of course, there's the option of, well, these are just irreconcilable, or there's error, or uh, whatever those, those kind of answers might be. Tho- those, are, those are really just lazy uh, attempts t- and, uh, and uh, not taking the text uh, seriously. Uh, but, but of the answers that seek to uh, read God's word as God's infallible and errant word, uh, there's, there's been two uh, explanations that have, that have really, uh, I think, um, either one uh, can be satisfactory. Both, both provide a good explanation for what's going on, and uh, I'm, I'm happy with either, and we'll, we'll talk about both of them. So the first explanation, the first uh, possibility, is that uh, Matthew uh, is giving Joseph's line. So Matthew's genealogy is tracing the genealogy of Joseph, and that Luke is giving the genealogy of Mary. So Luke is tracing Mary's lineage. So that's one possibility, and, and perhaps many of you have, have uh, heard that one before. It's very popular. Uh, the other option is that both are tracing uh, Joseph's genealogy. Um, Matthew and Luke are both following Joseph, but they're doing it in different ways. Matthew is following a, a royal uh, lineage, from David to Solomon, and so on. And Luke is giving a more biological or physical uh, lineage. And we see that as David go, or as Luke goes from David to his lesser-known son, Nathan. Uh, and we'll, we'll discuss both of these uh, as, as we go on. So the first option, Matthew follows Joseph, Luke follows Mary. Uh, this is a, a popular one. It, it goes back um, many years. And uh, simply put... Actually, let me back up very, very briefly. Uh, so just to look at the, the handout. Um, so uh, Luke's uh, genealogy of, of uh, Adam down to Abraham, uh, he's pulling from the genealogies that exist in Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter uh, 10, uh, First Chronicles, first chapter, First Chronicles. And so he's following that and uh, consistent with those. And then from Abraham to King David, uh, those lists are also uh, virtually the same. Uh, you'll notice the highlighted uh, name here, uh, Ram, 
uh, Arnie, and Admin. Um, Luke has uh, a couple extra names uh, that don't match what, what Matthew has, and so there's, there's various uh, explanations for that. It's possible that uh, uh, they're the same person with a different spelling. It's also possible that Luke is uh, including a, a fuller genealogy than what Matthew had. Uh, but really, th- th- those aren't uh, the main, um, that's not the main uh, point of discussion for us. And so if, if it's all right with everyone, we'll just skip over to the, page, the second page, because that's where we want to have our discussion. And so, and, and I'm happy to, to talk more about uh, page one um, with you later. But the second page, where we start with David, that's where the, the divergence happens. And we'll see Matthew goes from David to King Solomon, and he follows the royal line of, of kings. Uh, uh, going down from there, while David takes a different, or Luke takes a different route and follows uh, David and his uh, son Nathan, and goes down from there. The lines reconverge uh, with Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, but then they diverge again until they get down to Joseph. Uh, so we'll we'll walk through a lot of this as we go forward. Okay, so the 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 first option that we have. Uh, that Matthew is, is following Joseph's line, Luke's following Mary's line. This is uh, probably the um, uh, easiest to wrap our heads around. Um, and in this explanation, uh, so we see uh, this, this man, Heli, is, is not uh, Joseph's father, but was Mary's father. And uh, the explanation for this that people make is, is when we see in verse 23, if you look at Luke 3.23, uh, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And it says, being the son, parentheses, as was supposed, of Joseph. And so this first option, and they're taking that to mean uh, that uh, obviously Joseph was not the father uh, and that uh, Heli was not uh, the father of Joseph, but rather the father of Mary. And so, and so from Heli onward, this is... This is Mary's uh, genealogy, and it goes all the way up, and we can even trace Mary's lineage up through uh, King David himself, up through Abraham, all the way up to Adam uh, and uh, Eve, and Mary being uh, the daughter of Eve, and, and so making those connections, and, and very explicitly making those connections of how Mary giving birth to Jesus was the, the seed of the woman, and the uh, the one who was was promised in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the serpent's head. And so this, this parenthetical statement, as was supposed, this is an indicator for us that Luke intends to give us Mary's lineage and not Joseph's. It's also interesting uh, that uh, there seems to be some uh, rabbinic tradition that uh, supports uh, this position. There is a, a Miriam, which again is the same name as Mary, uh, who is the daughter of a man a man named uh, Heli. And so many believe that this Miriam is, uh, slash Mary is the one and the same, Mary the mother of Jesus, and see this as, as support for it. This view is, is helpful because, um, I already mentioned that, uh, and the view is, uh, is, uh, is helpful and because it avoids the problem of accounting for these two different names uh, for uh, Joseph's father. Uh, so in Matthew, Joseph's father is listed as Jacob. In Luke's gospel, Joseph's father is listed as, as Heli. Well, if, if Heli was not Joseph's father, if, it, if he was actually Mary's father, then that problem uh, isn't a uh, problem anymore. We don't need any further explanation for that. However, the problem with this, 
theory uh, is that it's grammatically difficult. It's it is technically possible, but just on the ver- on the very verge of of just barely possible to to read uh, Luke's gospel in this way as as him referring uh, to uh, Mary Mary's father, not Joseph's father. Uh, and it's it's difficult because you would think, and and many commentators will put this forward and say, well, if he intended to list Mary's genealogy, he would have just listed Mary and would have just simply stated uh, Jesus, the son of Mary, who was the son of Heli, and so on and so forth. And we're also uh, that that rabbinic source I, I listed as well. It, it's it's possible, but it's not explicit either that this was the the Mary that um, of, of scripture. And again, we know there's many Marys in Scripture. It's not an uncommon name. But what, what, what is important and what we see, and, and this is true in both of these, is, um, is the virgin birth is still, uh, still presented as, as fact and as truth uh, to us. Um, because, again, uh, Joseph was only the father as was supposed. He was, the, he was the, not, not a biological father, but he was still a father um, uh, by, uh, by adoption. Okay, so that's the first option. The second one is that uh, uh, Matthew is giving a royal line, and Luke is giving a physical or a biological line. This second option uh, is helpful because it, uh, it it's reading the text more naturally, uh, as uh, Luke is giving the line of Joseph, as was supposed. That only refers to the birth of Jesus, but this line is still Joseph's line. Joseph was the son of Heli, and so on and so forth. So it requires a bit more explanation, but it's just as plausible. Um, and uh, many uh, uh, have adopted this view. A lot of commentators today do it. Uh, uh, Calvin uh, asserted this view, um, or I should say, uh, this is like a broad view, and then underneath it, there are a lot of different uh, ways that people kind of uh, shift some of the names and relationships around, or not, not shift the names in terms of order, but but try to figure out how those different people might be interrelated. So there's there's some differences even in this, but this is the broad uh, picture that Luke, Matthew's giving a royal line of sorts, Luke's giving a more biological, physical line of sorts. But this is what, this view is what uh, the, the great Princeton theologian uh, J. Gresham Machen uh, put forward. And if you remember, he was uh, uh, ministering and alive and doing a lot of his work during the fundamental uh, controversy uh, in the 1920s and 30s. And so he wrote a book on uh, defending the virgin birth, and he, uh, in that book, uh, talked about the genealogies uh, in detail to defend their accuracy and their, uh, their uh, historical reliability. And so he gives this explanation, and I'm quoting from, from Machen. He says that Matthew gives the, the legal descendants of David, that is, the men who would have been legally the heir of the Davidic throne if that throne had continued, while Luke gives the descendants of David in that particular line to which, finally, Joseph, the husband of Mary, belonged. And so, in other words, Luke is giving the, the biological bloodline, what we would normally think of when we think of a genealogy, an ancestry, ancestral tree. But Matthew, on the other hand, is giving the royal line of succession from David down to Joseph, which sometimes does follow the bloodline. So, of course, Solomon was the biological son of David and, and uh, so on down that line. Uh, but just like uh, with, with uh, kings throughout history, uh, sometimes that line is broken uh, when a king does not have a son. It's passed on to another, another son. But that, that royal line is being followed. Uh, so this option uh, does uh, give us some... It frees us from that grammatical 
textual maneuvering in the first option to account or uh, uh, to make it so that it's about Mary. But it does have the problem of, of how we have to uh, account for these two different names as Joseph's father. And uh, what uh, this view requires then, and you'll see at the bottom, uh, we have in the green, uh, we have uh, Joseph's uh, grandfather, uh, according to Matthew, is a guy named Mathon. In Luke's gospel, his name is Mathot. And so many believe that this is the same person with a different spelling, which is very common. And so I named him Mathont and put him in the common column. Uh, just for uh, ease of understanding. So if he was the same person, this, this Mathant, um, we can um, hypothesize. If that's the case, then uh, these two men, Jacob and Heli, were brothers. And what was common uh, in that time, the Leverite marriage, when a brother uh, died without a physical descendant, uh, his, his living brother would... Uh, would bear a child uh, through his widow uh, so that his line would continue. And so, what Machen and others put forward as, as an option for this, this discrepancy, quote-unquote, is that uh, Heli bears a biological son. His name is Joseph, but he is to be the legal heir and the son of his brother, Jacob, through Leverite marriage. So, Mathant, then has these two sons, these brothers, Jacob and Heli. Uh, Jacob dies uh, childless, and Heli bears a son. Uh, his name's Joseph, who is a biological, uh, the biological son of Heli, but through the Leverite marriage, the, the legal heir of the son uh, Jacob. And so that's why uh, Matthew and Luke will list two different, uh, two different names uh, for uh, for the father of Joseph. This also requires some explanation as to why, if Mathant is the same, if Mathon and Mathot are the same person, well, you can see why the problem is just pushed back a step. <laughs> so now we, have to, now we have to answer, well, why does he have uh, two different uh, uh, fathers then? And uh, there's various uh, uh, options for that as well. Uh, Machen asserts that Eliezer in Matthew's line uh, this, and again, this is the royal line. So his, his line expired with Eliezer, and so Mathant was an adopted uh, heir to that line as well. And so uh, it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, and here's the problem, is that it all is just us trying to figure out exactly how it all works out. Um, and, and there's various different ways that, that different uh, scholars uh, attempt to do that. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, also... Um, takes Machen's position, but, ad- uh, but changes it a little bit, and uh, he, he does not think that Mathant is one person, but that they are two people, Mathot and Mathan, uh, and that, uh, but that uh, Jacob and, and Heli are half-brothers, and, and so he kind of goes at it a different way, and, and I tried whiteboarding this in, in my office, and just I, I cannot uh, keep my head straight myself, uh, and all the different possibilities, they are uh, almost virtually endless, and uh, and uh, so we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that uh, for right now. I know that's uh, unsatisfactory, and we can talk more about it later. Um, and, uh, but, but many different people, uh, for option, option one, if, if, um, if this was tracing Mary's line, uh, many people have uh, believed that. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, J.C. Ryle, 
Uh, many modern commentators prefer uh, that, thinking that is, is the best explanation. Like I already said, uh, Calvin uh, wants to trace both of them through Joseph, as does Machen in his argument. Uh, many uh, present-day uh, commentators uh, do that as well, D.A. Carson, uh, Daryl Bach, and others. And uh, I haven't read through, uh, I haven't done a survey of, of all the different uh, people and take different opinions. And some just leave it as, I, I don't know, and that's also okay. So that's, uh, that's, I give that to you, <laughs> and you can decide which, which you prefer. If you told me, Levi, you have to pick one before you can leave today, uh, I would uh, probably uh, go with option two and think that uh, this is following Joseph's lineage um, and, and, uh, and take one of the different explanations for how and why these names might diverge. But what, what is helpful, though, and um, as we kind of wrap up this, this uh, discussion, and we try to put ourselves into the mind of the gospel writers of, of Luke and of, of Matthew, let's try to ask ourselves what, what the question was that they were asking. So remember Luke, he's writing to a Gentile audience. He wants the people from all the nations to know that this Jesus of Nazareth, this uh, Jewish carpenter, he was also the Savior of, of all peoples. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and so he's purposely connecting Jesus back to this Messianic uh, Jewish Messiah King uh, tradition. So Luke and Matthew, they're, they're asking uh, different questions, different questions about Jesus, which leads them to write different genealogies. And this is what was helpful for me uh, going forward and helpful for, for me this past week. So Luke is asking the question, who was Joseph's? Or if, if you prefer to take it as Mary's line, who was Mary's? Who was Joseph's? Who was, who's Mary's? Who was Joseph's father? That's his, that's his basic question. And so the answer is his father was Heli. And then he goes back from there through Nathan, uh, David's son, 2 Samuel chapter 3, through Nathan to David, and then from David to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam. So he's going about it that way. And that helps explain why his genealogy goes uh, backwards, uh, uh, as it were, back, back in time, instead of starting in the back and going forward. So Luke's asking, who's Joseph's father? But uh, Matthew, on the other hand, he's wanting to connect Jesus specifically to this royal line of, of succession of, of Davidic kings. And so he asks the question, who was the heir to David's throne? So those are two different questions. Who was the heir to David's throne? And that, the answer to that question is King Solomon. And then from Solomon on, on down. And so when we think of those two terms, that, that also explains for us why these two genealogies, why they go in different directions, and why they're communicating uh, different, uh, different truths, not in the sense of competing truths, but different, different aspects or different um, uh, facets of, of, uh, of Jesus' uh, lineage. And so this leads us then back to the original question uh, for uh, our, our discussion on this, on this matter. There's a better question that we need to be asking, and I want to make sure uh, there's so much more we could talk about, all these genealogies, that they're, they're interesting, uh, they're also confusing. Uh, sometimes we just want to uh, just move on, um, and it's, it's, it's helpful to talk through them, but I want us to remember there's a better question that we need to be asking. There's a more important and more significant question that we need to be asking. And that question is, why does Luke put his genealogy here? 
Why does Luke separate Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness with this genealogy? By asking that question, it'll help us to understand the significance of what Luke is doing. We understand what Matthew's doing in his genealogy, and he even explicitly tells us why he's doing it. He begins with the genealogy because he's tying this, this Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, all the way back to David and to Abraham. He is the promised son who was coming. Jesus is the rightful heir of David. He's the offspring of Abraham. And so Matthew says, look here, this is this Jesus. He's, he is the one who was promised. He's Abraham's son of, of promise. He's the heir of David's throne. Luke uh, also is connecting Jesus to David and to Abraham, but, but he does more than that. He goes all the way back to Adam. And so why does he do that? Well, in doing so, he doesn't just connect Jesus to the royal line of David, which he does, he, and he doesn't just connect him back to the ethnic uh, people of Israel uh, through Abraham, which he also does, but Jesus is connected all the way back, and he's demonstrated, shown to be a descendant of mankind. He is a son of Adam. And now we are starting to see the, the fuller uh, picture of what Luke is doing here. Uh, in, in the baptism, we see the triune God acting in time and in space. The Son of Man is praying. The, the Spirit is descending on the Son of Man. And the Father calls from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. And in this verse, the divine sonship of this man, Jesus, is established. He is the Son of God. But then the next immediate verse, the next verse, we have the genealogy. And so we see that the Son of God now, it turns out that this Son of God is also the Son of Man. He's the Son of Adam having his genealogy traced all the way back, again, either through Joseph or Mary, uh, they both end at the same point. And that's the point we're stressing here, that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man, the Son of the very first human being. So now we see he's fully God, without qualification. He is the Son of God. He's also a descendant of Adam. He's bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He is uh, a son of Adam, so he is without qualification fully man. But do you notice what it says about Adam at the end of that genealogy? It's very interesting. At the end of Luke's genealogy, he says, the son of Adam, Adam, who is himself the son of God. So Adam, the first man being formed by God's very own hands, having life uh, breathed into him, is called God's son. But we know what happened to this, this son uh, that was placed in the garden. He did not follow his father's commands. He did not listen to the voice of his father, but he rebelled, and he rebelled against his creator, and, and by account of his, uh, his sin, the, the world was plunged uh, into sin, and death came into the world. But instead of dying that day and perishing, God once again sought Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? And in, even in the, the cursing of Adam and Eve and of, of, uh, of mankind, he gave them the promise of the gospel that one of his offspring, the seed of the woman, would undo the curse that Adam brought about. And so from that moment on, the story of redemptive history, the story of Holy Scripture, has been the story about searching for this, this promised son, this offspring of the woman, the one who would undo the curse that Adam brought into the world. And so we know the story of Abraham. God called Abraham. Abraham uh, was brought out of the land of Ur 
to be God's chosen people? Was, was Abraham uh, the son? Was Abraham going to be the one uh, who would undo the curse? Well, no, we, we see that he was not, but he was promised a son. And his offspring would be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In other words, God's blessing would go out through him to undo the curse. And so we see the story go. He does have a son of the promise, but Isaac was not the son, capital S, son. And all, through down, all, all throughout, down to uh, Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, who'd be renamed Israel, uh, God would raise up Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And we're told uh, that uh, in that moment, we're told by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now again, this is, this is before Matthew's gospel exists. This is before Jesus came out on the scene. So, so the prophet's referring to Israel as the son of God here. So was Israel, is this, this nation, is this now finally the, the son who's going to undo the curse? Well, we know in the story of, of Israel's history that they, they fail many times. And so now we're left waiting. They're grumbling in the wilderness, disobeying the Lord. They did not pass the test, and so the waiting continues. Many years later, as they become a nation and a mighty nation and a kingdom, God raises up David, who is a man after his own heart. Is David going to be the son? Well, no, we see David's many sins, uh, sin with Bathsheba uh, among them. But he's promised, and in the Davidic covenant, that his son and the, the throne of David would never depart from his son. And so now we have King Solomon, and finally, the kingdom of King Solomon. We can't even understand or fathom just how magnificent this kingdom was. And the people of Israel living during that time very well thought, this is the son. But unfortunately, we know that story and how that story ends as well. That Solomon, this wise man, abandoned his own wisdom and sinned against God, and so the kingdom split in two and eventually was destroyed. And so now we fast forward all the way up to the present uh, day here in Luke, and now we have this new son, and we're asking ourselves, could he be the one? He's a descendant of David, he's a descendant of and an offspring of Abraham, and he's a son of Adam, who himself was the son of God. And so now, as we move from baptism to genealogy to temptation, we understand the significance of what Luke is doing here by putting the genealogy in this place. And the question before us is, will this son, who is both the son of God and the son of man, will this son succeed where all the others have failed? Will this son treasure wisdom and will he serve only the Lord? Will this son be the true Israel, and will he pass the test in the wilderness? Will he, rather than murmur against God, will he be murmuring to himself and meditating on the law of God day and night? Will this son succeed in submitting to the word of God where the first Adam failed? And will he trust in God's commands and not succumb? Will this second Adam not succumb to the lies and temptations of the serpent, of the devil? By putting this genealogy in between Christ's baptism and temptation, Luke is posing those questions to his readers. Is this Jesus? Is he truly the Christ? Is he the Son of God, the Son of Man, who has come to seek and to save the lost? Will he succeed where all else and all others have failed? Well, you have to come back next week to find out the answer. <laughs>